From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Starting, though, with some good news. And as you've been hearing on the news, anyone living in the Fraser Valley who depends on transit has probably been having a pretty tough go of it since transit workers went on strike in March. We know there is a new labour agreement in place. Finally, some common ground found between the two sides. But how long will it take for service to get back up and running and to those pre-strike levels? Let's bring in the head of the union involved, Randy Coop is the president of QP561 and joins us on the line now to talk more about this. Randy, good afternoon to you. You bet, thanks. This is good news for people in the Fraser Valley, especially people who depend on transit. We know that the months-long strike has now ended, the deal has been ratified. What does that mean for service actually resuming and getting back to what it was like before the strike? Well, the employer and the union are working hard together. Our mechanics are in there uh, working tirelessly overtime to uh, get the buses up to speed. They've been sitting for a long time, so there's a there's a certain amount of uh, servicing that needs to be done. So that's the biggest piece that's uh, that we're trying to get through. So, uh, and then there's a little bit of a training piece for the drivers as well. Uh, when they go that long without um, driving, there's a little bit of a refresher too. So that's all taking place right now. This was a lengthy dispute, a lengthy strike with people, with your members being out since March 20th. How are they doing? They're doing good. They're very happy to be getting back in there. And, you know, they, they've missed the work. They missed the people. They missed the members of the community. And um, But they're they're happy to get back. Can you go into any of the details? I know that uh, I read that this is an agreement that, uh, on a positive note, it does narrow that wage gap with other transit workers in in the province. There's a pension plan that was brought in. Can you talk at all about what else it was or where that common ground was found? Yeah, I mean, we did take a good step forward in closing that wage gap. Uh, Mr. Reddy uh, did a very good job at uh, finding a you know, fair compromise for both parties. So, yeah, I mean, we were seeking parity with, um, like, the Metro Vancouver area, the Coast Mountain Bus Company. Uh, we didn't quite get there, but uh, our our agreement is in line with the uh, Victoria and the Sea to Sky agreements. So, yeah, we did, we did make a significant steps in closing that gap. And uh, you mentioned uh, Vince Reddy, and I know when he became involved, there was uh, a lot of, uh, the, the thought was, well, if he can't find some uh, common ground, if he can't find an agreement, uh, then then the two sides must be very, very far apart. How instrumental was he in bringing the two sides together? Oh, he was, he was key. Like, it, it was a 10-day um, assignment for him at first. And then very quickly, he knew he had his work cut out for him, and uh, we extended it up to six weeks. So it was a very thorough process. And in the end, uh, written submissions were put in by both parties. Uh, He took those away and came up with a fair compromise that worked for everybody. So it was good. 
It is pretty amazing when you see the work he can do. And interesting when you say as far as extending the time as well, because I remember covering other labor disputes. As long as he was still involved, there was some hope. And he was pretty well known for if it wasn't even possible, even he couldn't work the miracles and would book out. But that must have been at least kind of keeping negotiators going in that there there was some hope that this deal would be found. Yeah, absolutely. It was a long period in between. Uh, we had a lot of people asking us questions, but you're right. It did uh, assure people knowing that Vince was still involved. What does it say as well about residents in the Fraser Valley? And we certainly heard from people and talked to people saying that, yes, well, they understood why the union was out, why this strike was taking place. It really was a hardship for a lot of people. What do you kind of say to those residents that, while supportive, did really suffer in some ways because of this? You're right. They they were very supportive, and, and we do. We understand their, their frustration and everything. And it's not like that's the last thing our, our drivers wanted to do was be on strike. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. They understand the hardships it does have on these communities. But in this particular case, the wage gap just continued to get bigger and bigger over the years to uh, 32%. And then even while we were in this dispute, uh, Coast Mountain and Unifor signed a deal that put them even over 40% uh, above our, our members. So that's that that's the rationale for why they did it. And they, you know, obviously they don't they don't like to put you know the community in these situations. But we we appreciate more than we can say the support that we did receive from them. And moving forward from this, because it is a a different setup in that uh, the employer here is First Transit, which which is a company that subcontracts. It's not it's not like you're negotiating directly uh, with TransLink or with those other the, the other union like you just mentioned. Going forward, do you think that you'll be able to work better with First Transit or how how does the relationship move forward from this point? Well, we have a collective agreement that we've we've all signed on to, and uh, you know I expect that they'll comply with it, and we'll comply with it, and uh, we'll just move forward in a positive way. So, getting back to uh, like you said, uh, maintenance on some of the vehicles that uh, have been sitting, a bit of retraining. Uh, I understand Handy Dart is one of the first things that will go back to full regular service. Do you have a timeline as far as how things are going to be coming back online? Yeah, I know the employer will be putting something out there because it is that's their role to kind of let the community know. But I, from my understanding, Handy Dart would might be ready to go on Monday, and then uh, the conventional buses will be following that soon after. But uh, yeah, I, I don't have the exact numbers, but I'm sure they will be sending something out. Sure. Uh, and how did your, your staffing go as far as or your members? Like you said, uh, this was a, a lengthy strike and, and difficult for, for all of those involved. Uh, did you lose many union members or did anybody leave, uh, take early retirement or move on rather than kind of stick it out and, and hope to get back to work? No, I think most uh, we've, <laughs> we've retained pretty well everybody. And everybody had, you know, a lot of members already had second jobs and they were picking up more work on the side. Uh, to keep going, and um, yeah, so I, I don't, and, and I think they felt very supported from uh, the local union and our provincial and national unions as well through this process. So they they felt strongly that uh, we were going to get something done for them. And uh, I, I should know this, but how long is the deal? Uh, as far as how long can kind of uh, workers get back to work and not have to worry about this? 
It is a six-year deal, but as you know, we were over three years behind. So this goes to the end of 20, uh, April of 26. Yeah. All so right. we still got another two and a half years or so left. All right. Well, Randy, it's good news. And uh, I know re- residents of the Fraser Valley will be happy to hear things getting back on track as well. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. Well, as you likely heard on the news, Pat Carney, a trailblazing former MP, senator and journalist, passed away earlier this week at the age of 88. She was the first female conservative member of parliament elected in B.C., the first female conservative appointed from the province to the Senate. She was educated in Canada after being born in China. She worked as a journalist as well as an economic consultant in the Northwest Territories and Yukon before she entered her career in politics. First elected to the House of Commons in February 1980 in the riding of Vancouver Centre. And she certainly left a big mark on parts of Vancouver, one of those communities, Chinatown. Lorraine Lowe is joining me now, Executive Director of the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden. Lorraine, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, I know that you were very shocked and saddened to hear the news about the passing of Senator Carney. So uh, my condolences, because I know you worked very closely with her. And you posted a bit about Chinatown and how uh, the, the great things that Senator Pat Carney did for Chinatown. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so so Pat and I reconnected um, in 2021 uh, she actually uh, was attending our 35th anniversary virtually um, and, of course, sharing us with all of us uh, what she's accomplished, her accomplishments, and how much she's contributed to Chinatown. So, um, you know, with with the garden, uh, that was started in 1986. So uh, at the time, I believe she was like the Minister of International Trade. And, you know, her role as the MP for Vancouver Centre, she was instrumental in in getting the federal funding for the initial phase and startup of uh, construction of the garden, uh, working with Joe Wise, John Vaughn, and Marvin Samuels. So you know it's so fitting because you know she, her her the way Pat was it's like it's, it's like the garden's mandate because we act as a connector and a bridge, and you know that's that's the epitome of who Senator Pat Carney was and her legacy. What was it about the the neighborhood and about the garden itself that that she was so passionate about? Well, I mean, there were at the time there were 50 other cities in North America who was interested in in getting the Sujal style craftsman uh, garden to board, and you know, to build such a courtyard garden uh, in our city, Vancouver was the one that was chosen. So, you know, we are the only garden that's the only full scale courtyard garden in, in Canada, and you know, at the time. Uh, her main problem was nobody knew that what a Chinese garden was. So, you know, government departments, they were reluctant to fund something like it. So she finally went to Suzhou, China to go see for herself because she wanted to sell the idea of like, what is a Chinese garden? So, you know, Parks Canada thought it must have been something to do with agriculture. Agriculture thought it belonged to external affairs. So, you know, she really, um, she was, you know, adamant to make sure that this is going to happen. So she went there for herself and she came back and she was able to sell the idea. And here we are today, 37 years later. And, you know, we have a lot to thank her for. 
I, I saw some of the comments too, and, and obviously uh, a lot of tributes are coming in and people are sharing memories. And there was one uh, from uh, the Green Party, it's from Elizabeth May, saying that uh, Elizabeth May was, was reluctant when she first started in politics to take credit for things or to stand up and, and make it known that, that she did this or that, that this is only here because I did this. And it was Pat Carney that told her, well, you better take credit for it because you're a woman in politics. And at that time, no one else is going to give you credit for these things. So you, you, you need to stand up for yourself. Uh, for, from the Pat Carney that you knew and, and talked to, does that sound uh, pretty par for the course? It totally. That's so Pat Carney. So, you know, she was a community builder. She was a skilled negotiator. She forged those vital trade relationships and fostering the economic growth. And, you know, our conversations, I really enjoyed them because she was always so straight up. She was no nonsense. You know, I love and respected that about her. And she she she's inspirational to a lot of the uh, the politicians, the female politicians that you see today and, and to myself. So, you know, she has left us, but we will never forget her legacy. And when you talk to her about this as well, and it was very clear, like you said, that she was passionate about that garden and about the community. Uh, did you talk to her at all in more recent times, even when planning events and planning the anniversaries, kind of uh, about what had happened to the community or, or, or the, the, the hardship that kind of it went through, especially during the pandemic? Yeah, so so as you know, uh, she moved over to Saturna Island. Um, we were communicating virtually and, you know, we expressed, um, you know, what was going on in Chinatown. She's obviously seen what was going on in Chinatown. And, you know, it's, it's disheartening for her um, because this is something that she built, this garden, and she was so proud of it. She really wanted to come. Um, unfortunately, you know, she had some respiratory issues and um, she just needed to relax and, and rest. But um, I, I connected with her again in late 2022. And I think there was a documentary that um, was uh, focused on the freshwater resources in Canada. Um, but unfortunately, she wasn't able to take on um, that because, you know, again, she had respiratory issues and she couldn't come out this way. So she was never able to see uh, what Vancouver Chinatown um, was at that time, but um, she did. She was very aware of what was going on. And when you look at the garden and uh, see it, and and the the beauty of that garden, is there any particular part of it that reminds you more of Pat Carney, or that kind of symbolizes Pat Carney, or is it the garden as a whole? It's the garden as a whole because it stands there. It's a pillar of our community. And it's, it's just, we are so proud of that, um, uh, you know, what was being done back then. It was a symbol of, of um, good foreign diplomatic relations between Canada and between uh, China. So, you know, very proud. She was a, a strong negotiator and that was her, that was what we respected with her because she was that bridge. And that's what the garden is. It's a bridge of cultural understanding between both nations. And, you know, her work continues to inspire all of us to carry forward this legacy of building bridges. And I know you talked about this as well, that her accomplishments, that yes, the garden is a huge one and that commitment to the Chinatown community, but also pointing out so many other accomplishments as well and really inspiring a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the whole you know, coastline and, you know, just her work that's been done 
um, with the waters, with the Board of International Trade and NAFTA. Like, there's just, it's endless. And, you know, not to mention that, you know, she was a, a good friend of my father's and he spoke very highly of her just because she was just a connector and she wanted to build those bridges and she certainly did. I will fully admit I did not know that Pat Carney was born in China before coming to to Canada and having this amazing career. Do you think it was because of that as well? I mean, not only because of that, but did she feel a special connection to China because she was born there before coming to Canada? Yes, she's expressed that you know, many times that she, she was born in China and her father was actually a policeman over there. So we, you know, we got into discussions on that. Um, but she, yeah, she had a passion for the culture and clearly, you know, she's left this legacy that we can all continue to celebrate. And it's, 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 it's such an honor to, to have met her virtually. Uh, I met her when I was a child, but you know, that was years ago. She probably wouldn't have remembered me, but it was such an honor to finally meet her and connect with her. Um, and, and I'm just glad I had that opportunity. Well, Lorraine, thank you for joining us and for talking more about this and that part of Pat Carney's legacy. Appreciate you making the time today. Great, thanks, Jill. As you just heard on the news, some alarming numbers coming from BC Highway Patrol. They put out some information earlier today saying during the past two weeks, Highway Patrol has been working to keep the roads safe with attendees traveling to and from the Shambhala Music Festival near Selmo, saying during the week leading up to the festival, members took three impaired drivers and three prohibited drivers off the road. But on the Monday and Tuesday following the event, police were focusing on impaired and fatigued drivers. They removed 57 impaired drivers from the road and issued 162 violation tickets in relation to a variety of offenses. Those included defective vehicles, unlicensed drivers and uninsured vehicles. Joining us now to talk a little bit more about this is Charlie Gron, the Vancouver chapter spokesperson with the group MAD. Charlie, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, what is your response when you hear these numbers? Uh, police even used the word staggering when they talked about the 57 impaired drivers that they removed from the roads. What is your response when you hear that? I, I think people in our organization recognize that there are impaired drivers on the road. Um, whether there's an increased volume of impaired drivers is something I don't think we have enough in- information to conclude. What I take away from this story, though, is that Police are energized to enforce. And I'm fond of saying that, you know, 95% of the motoring public makes the right decision 99% of the the time. For the other 5%, maybe those who attend music festivals on the weekend, we need the police to have vigorous enforcement. And what I think is good about this story is that it appears in this instance, the police were very proactive, they were planned, and, and they did what the public expects them to do, which is vigorously enforce our laws. In a in a scenario like this, though, and not to suggest that it's okay in any case to drive impaired or, or to be on the road in that condition, police clearly were targeting this particular group, knowing that, I mean, this was a festival, we even did a segment on this, that there were booths that were set up at this festival for people to test their drugs and make sure that they were safe. So it's it seems pretty obvious that police set up to check this group, knowing that there could be a large number of impaired drivers. 
Um, I think that's not uncommon for policing. Um, um, uh, when you leave a Vancouver Canucks game, very predictably, there are check stops in different parts of the city. I think people um, who um, are, are familiar participants in these sorts of events anticipate, anticipate these happenings, and they plan their behavior and the consumption of drugs and alcohol accordingly. Um, I, how, why people would persist in these circumstances, I don't understand. But I gave up trying to find people who put others at risk a long time ago. Uh, your group, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, has been uh, advocating for, for safer roads against impaired driving for many, many years. When we look at these uh, tickets and the people that were removed from the roads in this one particular uh, setup when police put up these checks, uh, it was impaired driving and kind of under that umbrella of impaired driving, um, they talked as well about that that it, it wasn't necessarily drunk driving, it was impaired driving, whether that was somebody who was under the influence of some kind of drug or some other kind of substance. Has that changed as far as your organization? Still the same the same focus and the same goal, but has it changed given all of the different things that people might use or might be under the influence of? We know people are using drugs and alcohol. And uh, what I thought was interesting about this story in the weekend is that the, the police had very specifically trained officers, drug, drug recognition experts um, who were present. Uh, these folks are very highly trained to recognize where people consume illicit drugs um, and where an impairment um, happens. It has made policing more complex, more challenging, but, um, um, you know, in recognition of the efforts uh, of the different police jurisdictions, they've really stepped up and trained officers. And, and I think we have a good competency on the roads able to recognize people who have consumed illicit drugs. Uh, they mentioned as well, they brought in Alexa's bus, with which uh, people might be familiar with. Uh, it's a bus and it's uh, in tribute to Alexa, who was a little girl who was kit, uh, killed. She was struck by an impaired driver. And, and as to your point, uh, they talked about that they brought in impaired driving specialist investigators. Uh, they uh, did, I think police said, 85 field sobriety tests, but then also the 20 drug recognition evaluations with uh, 11 approved screening device tests. So, so is that the kind of the technology that is really helping officers or helping figure out who is on the road and who is impaired? Yeah, I, I think if, if you know, I'm very optimistic about our cause. And, and if, you know, if I, if I were to look at the top three things that make me um, confident that we're, we're going to make a lot of headway against this problem in the next, you know, five or 10 years, it's, uh, you know, young people, um, the vigorous enforcement of the laws and the increased quality of the technology that's at the hands of disposal of police officers in the field. Um, you know, those three things, plus, uh, you know, the, the good everyday decisions that are made by folks who choose not to put others at risk. I think if we look at those things, I feel very confident about the future. Is it surprising at all to you that, and, and I, I get what you said earlier, that you've kind of given up trying to figure this out to, or, 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 or go down that kind of go down that pathway. But is it surprising that we are still having these conversations when we know about the, the dangers with impaired driving? We know that it can, can literally ruin lives, that we're still talking about this. And here's just one weekend with this number of drivers taken off the road. I, I think, Jill, there's just a segment of our population who's not going to listen to reason. They don't care any, about any purpose other than their own enjoyment. Um, and and quite honestly, I'm, I'm not confident that the courts are ever going to catch up to these folks. 
That's why we need to help police. We need to identify when there's people who could be in, impaired by drugs and alcohol. We need to give that information to the police and allow them to to engage those people on the road, take them off the road, um, um, because, uh, you know, the courts, from my view, they're theater, stores, theater sports for kind of Canada's hyper-literate class. They're not the place, uh, in my experience, where practical justice is dispensed. They're not going to keep us safe from the folks who would put us in harm's way. And and really, too, uh, I mean, uh, there's obviously a need for that and a need for the courts, but that's not where you want things to end up, is it? Because if you're at that stage that it's in the court process, that that means the damage has already been done. If there's personal injury, yeah. Um, I, I saw something earlier today. I'm not sure if you can talk to this, but I think it was Delta Police, uh, the Delta Police Department uh, saying that they were pleased that they had been recognized by MAD as one of the top enforcement agencies when it comes to targeting and getting impaired drivers off the roads. Is that something MAD does as well? Looks at kind of what different police agencies in different communities are doing when it comes to combating impaired driving? Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, this this week, for the second time in consecutive years, our chapter gave out awards uh, we, uh, to um, Vancouver area police jurisdictions. We looked at 13 jurisdictions and we identified the five that had the highest rates of enforcement. Port Moody uh, made the list uh, for the second year, or correction, uh, uh, Delta made the list uh, for the second year in the row, um, as did Langley and Port Moody. And I was pleased that uh, uh, West Vancouver and, and New Westminster Police Department were on the list for the first time. Um, so these were these were the jurisdictions that led all others in the lower mainland in terms of uh, impaired driving enforcement. And, uh, you know, we made that announcement on Wednesday. Uh, and what we want to do is we want to give encouragement to those jurisdictions uh, who are sort of leading the way and keeping the public safe. Does that mean that the those jurisdictions are better at enforcement or does it mean they have more impaired drivers? It, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. And I think that what that underscores is we need a more reliable source of public data. But it also, you know, uh, it, because one jurisdiction didn't make it on our list this year, it uh, doesn't mean uh, that they're not making efforts. It means that, like all police jurisdictions, they're responding to public need. And if they choose not to focus their resources in in the you know in furtherance of impaired driving enforcement, they're they're you know they're focusing in another area. Um, so that's why we have a top five list and we don't publish the whole thing is we understand that police are trying to balance the allocation of resources. Uh, in different directions in support of what the public expects in each in each municipal uh, municipal area. Well, thank you so much, uh, Charlie, for joining us and for talking about this specific uh, enforcement uh, blitz uh, that happened on the weekend, as well as uh, in general. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Jill. This is not a story you hear every day, but it is Friday. So when I saw this news release from the Coquitlam RCMP, my immediate response was, let's find out a little bit more about this. There are a number of puns and plays on words in the news release, but the bottom line is, thanks to a quick-thinking witness, an animal was saved from, well, from some pretty bad behavior. Joining us to talk about what exactly happened last night is Corporal 
Alexa Hodgins with Coquitlam RCMP. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is a bit of an odd one. We don't often get a story coming across that starts with the words feathery fugitive found police rescue chicken. What happened here? Yes, all puns aside and chick uh, jokes aside, we did receive a call last night from a concerned citizen who saw um, a group of youth uh, abusing a chicken. Uh, it's quite an unusual situation given that we are in an urban environment. Um, chickens aren't normally in and around the city of Coquitlam, um, but our officers were able to attend quickly and find the chicken uh, who did not sustain any injuries and is now safely located at uh, the police detachment, which will soon be transported over to the SPCA so that they can care for the chicken until we can reunite it with its owner. When you say there was a group of youth abusing a chicken, what were they doing? Uh, we had a concerned citizen contact us after they saw three youth um, huddled around a chicken and they were seen kicking and striking the animal as it was on the ground. Which is uh, disturbing, uh, I'm sure, for this person to see that. How important was it that the person, the witness, saw this happening, and it sounds like they were pretty quick to call police? They were, and we're very thankful for this uh, concerned citizen to contact us when they did. Um, Animal cruelty or any uh, violent acts that are happening in the moment these are incidents that we would like to be contacted as soon as possible. Um, and then we can get officers and any other emergency personnel there at the scene to provide any first aid if it's needed. Do you know if the witness, the citizen, tried to intervene or, or said anything to uh, the, I think it's, it's the three people, the, the three young people who were doing this be- before calling for help? Um, I don't have that information. I, I only ask that because we, we were talking earlier this week with a, a woman who uh, intervened trying to help a bus driver in West Vancouver. And unfortunately, we've had these other stories where where bystanders have, have stepped in and tried to help. And it's ended up they've been injured or, or the people have turned on them. Um, so it's probably a good thing in this case. Again, this person wouldn't know how the three people would react that instead of getting involved, it seems like they, they called 911 or called for help and, and did that instead. Right. Um, We don't encourage people to intervene in acts um, because the potential is that they could get injured themselves. This person did absolutely the right job and contacted the police who responded immediately and were able to safely um, get the chicken. uh, And we are still attempting to follow up and try to find these youth involved in this incident. I understand as well. And again, not every day you read a line like this in an RCMP news release, but it says the chicken was quite friendly. Uh, What does that tell us about, again, like you said, an area where there aren't a a lot of chickens, not a lot of of wildlife? Uh, What does that tell you or does it give you any hints as to where the chicken might have come from? You're absolutely (laughs) right. Uh, This chicken was unusual in that it was quite friendly, snuggling, Um, just wanted to be held by the officers, uh, which leads us to believe that maybe the chicken was a domesticated animal and someone's pet, which just adds to the layer of concern for us because we would like to reunite this uh, bird with their family.
And you mentioned the BC SPCA. So will the chicken then go to the local branch of the SPCA while trying to perhaps find the chicken's owner? That's correct. So the uh, Tri-Cities BC SPCA is going to come to the detachment to get the chicken and we'll be able to take care of the chicken while we continue our investigation in trying to identify and locate the suspects. Um, Animal cruelty is a charge under the criminal code and that's certainly something, uh, given the information that we have right now, that we would be looking further into. Do you know anything about the suspects? Was the witness, the person who called police, were they able to get a description or pass that along? We have a a vague description uh, as two Middle Eastern males with one Caucasian male. Uh, The suspects are described as being in around 15 to 16 years old, and they were wearing black T-shirt with jeans. And again, can you tell us, uh, in case maybe uh, somebody else saw something and, and didn't realize what they were witnessing or, or didn't think it was important at the time, uh, this was last night around 9.15, and where exactly did this happen? That's correct. It was around. It was on Glen Drive near Johnson Street in Coquitlam around 9, 9.15. 9.15 is the time that police attended, um, and the report was that these three youth were in possession and um, surrounding a chicken. And Corporal, just one other question, because I know you did release some photos as well of the chicken and of the officers. Does a case like this kind of, uh, I don't know what the word is, or kind of the look on the officer was smiling and it must feel good to to kind of save an animal. But again, it's not every day we we talk about the fact or, or see a photo of an RCMP officer with a rescued chicken. Yes, uh, our officers have pets uh, their own at home, dogs, cats, but it's very unusual that we are able to rescue a chicken. Uh, the officer in that photo is quite happy. Um, this chicken was quite friendly, likes being pet, likes to be held, and we're just happy that we're able to safely locate the chicken and uh, provide it a safe spot um, where it can rest after this. Um, what can only be a very stressful situation for the chicken. Corporal Hodgins, thank you so much for your time today, and uh, thanks for bringing us uh, up to speed on this. Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.